This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. And we are back. This is Matt Caraccio of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. And the summer seminar series keeps rolling along. This week, we're going to be talking with Dr. Fergus Connolly. I mean, Dr. Connolly is so much more than just you know, a, a person who writes books or presents in different topics. He has been somebody that has been an absolute mentor for me, somebody that I've consulted with, talked with, discussed many, many topics with, with regards to performance of athletes and teams. He is also currently the author of the book that is slowly but surely making its way to shelves right now, The Happiness Handbook, and among other things, the authors of 59 Lessons, and of course, the much-vaunted and heralded Game Changer, The Art of Sports Science, as well as also having several books out on The Process, which is the mythology or philosophical approach to the principles of coaching and winning as teams. So Dr. Connolly, I am beyond, beyond excited to be able to share the air with you once again in this summer seminar series. I believe this is now your third time as a guest, and you are currently among those on Mount Rushmore of the seminar series who have graced us with your presence, and we are just excited to talk again um, this upcoming summer. So, Dr. Connolly, welcome. Matt, thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. So this summer seminar series, Dr. Connolly, is all about the ideas of movement marvels, the ideas of scouting and understanding movement marvels. And I know we had spoken about maybe taking a little bit of a twist on this theme and talking about movement as far as a team goes, maybe taking a little bit of a different spin rather than talking about a particular player. What does it mean to have good movement or effective movement as a team? So I'm going to kind of just kind of lay it out there for you because this is right where you live and breathe from your experiences and what you write about. This is kind of where you really kind of, in my opinion, have really changed my lens. And I really want to just kind of allow you to share some of that insight with our listeners. What does it mean for a team to be a movement marvel? Well, I think, Matt, we've spoken about this, and I think, thankfully, more and more people are aware of the disadvantages of having a reductionist approach to looking at the athlete. So in other words, let's get them really, really strong. Let's do a lot of speed speed work, get them very fast, put them on the field, and they will be a great player. And just like that doesn't work for the player, that we have to look at them in a far more holistic sense. It's the same with the team. You can get all the fastest guys you want, put them on a field, and they're not going to play well necessarily. And... It's been interesting because as many years ago, even with rugby teams where uh, we would work with players maybe who had left teams who had beaten us, maybe they come and join us. And, you know, we do our fitness testing at the beginning of the year. And these guys who were on other teams who destroyed us the year before when we test them are actually nowhere near as fast. And in some cases, nowhere near as strong in the gym or in testing as they appeared to be on the field. And that was the first uh, warning sign or flag for me that simply getting guys very strong, getting them very fast, um, even if you could do that, putting them together, that alone didn't mean that the team was going to play fast. Yet then you look at some older players in particular in great teams 
who obviously weren't fast but were reading the game exceptionally well and they appeared to play fast or you couldn't exploit their so-called lack of speed. So if you isolate speed alone or if you isolate strength alone and you just maximize that, there is no guarantee, none whatsoever, that the player is going to be you know, fast or it's going to be a faster team. Now, that's not saying that strength and speed are not important. Of course they are. But it, they may not be the defining factors depending on the player, the team, and their position. Because there's so many factors that come into it. So sometimes, and a lot of this comes from a bias. Like we love, particularly from the strength and conditioning community, we love to have a number. You know, what's the 40 time or what's our new fitness test time or what's the bench squat? And we can see that and we can prove that somebody's getting stronger in the weight room or stronger. But that is no direct correlation with on the field. And we spoke about this before we came on air. If you watch the film, you watch actual game film, you will see that many of the breakaways, many of the great opportunities, players never hit max speed. They can't anyway because they're not running in a straight line, for example. They have, they have their head on a swivel. They're constantly judging. They're changing direction. Maybe they don't have distance enough to get up to max speed. Even sometimes their acceleration is limited. So you, you have to start with the film. Start with the game film and, and work backwards then and see for this particular player why are they playing well how can we make them better what's limiting them you know i mean you said a couple of interesting things about factors and variables and and, and at least that's how i contextualized it the factors and variables that go into um team performance and understanding what those factors and variables are even though they may not have uh, a, an immediate obvious quantitative element to them they do have qualitative aspects and they do have things that we can observe on film and and i'm curious um dr Connolly, if you could kind of maybe walk us through maybe some of those variables and elements those qualitative elements that we need to be aware of when we're watching the performance of a player within the context of a team what are some of those qualitative elements that we need to kind of keep in the back of our minds as we begin to assess not only the team as a whole and their movement quality, but also if we are trying to potentially reduce it down to a player, maybe because of contract purposes, we need to know, is he really worth um, paying the money that is coming up at the end of his contract? Or maybe from a strength and conditioning standpoint, if I'm working with him in the weight room for that particular team, I need to know at least what things to begin to work on. So from that perspective, what are some of those qualitative elements that can be observed within film that you do think speak to those various kind of degrees of reductionism <laughs> that we may have to consider? Yeah, so you always start with the film and look at the player in context and look at their ability to recognize where they are. So their ability to recognize opportunities, recognize what is happening, and then to make their decision. So when an event occurs, if it's a positive or a negative event in terms of the outcome, did the player make the right decision? And that comes down to them understanding where they were. Now, then did they choose the right action within that decision? Because sometimes players will recognize something but choose the wrong tool in the toolbox, so to speak. So it could be someone throwing a ball or it could be sprinting. And then it's their ability to execute within that moment. Now, that then brings us down finally to physical elements, so strength, speed, reaction, 
uh, their ability. Now, and at that moment, that's where the biomechanics become incredibly important um, and incredibly valuable. But the first stage with biomechanical analysis, and um, you know, I was telling you, Dan, half an hour at an NFL team recently going through this. At that moment, that's when the biomechanical analysis becomes really important because there you can start to identify which elements are putting the player most at risk or which movements. And so you're looking at, for example, you're starting, personally, I always start with the ankle. Dan does too. Now, Dan's far more detailed, but for me, it's always at the ankle um, because that gives you an indication as to why the knee and the hip might be moving in a different way. You can also start, well, at the same time, looking at shoulders and head movements. So to see, is the player straining excessively? Do they have good rotation? Is that what's compromising stride length? Um, and so at that moment, now you can start to look at, but if you just simply start, which, you know, far too many people do, they just start with looking at the athlete without looking at the context. So they say, oh, really short stride length. Well, hang on a second. He's trying to change direction, you know, or he doesn't, that, that is the stride that is suiting that moment in time. So those, you have to start from the actual event and work backwards. And that's, how, um, you know, with previous teams we used to do was take the event, start with decision and execution, and then work backwards to, it, was it a tactical element? Was it uh, physical? Perhaps it was psychological as well. Um, or is there then a technical, a biomechanical element to how we can improve that player? And this is where now at that moment your strength coach becomes important because, you know, I've been in meetings where, you know, we've had film where there has been um, uh, a turnover and you point out a player who didn't react quick enough or didn't manage to make the tackle readjust. And the comment is, well, he's not strong enough. He's not fast enough to get off his feet. Well, the strength coach then says, well, hang on. In the weight room, he's very strong and he's very fast in testing. Okay, but he's not fast in the game. So now we're starting to problem solve. If the strength coach thinks that he has sufficient strength and speed, well, then why is he not able to readjust at that moment in time? You know, and, and you said something that I think still even resonates with me to this day because it, it becomes a very prominent point of discussion, which is technique uh, versus tactical. Technical, technical decision-making and tactical decision-making. Is it a problem of technique or is it a problem of understanding the tactical situation? And I know we've talked about this before previously, you and I, both on and off air, um, but I do think it's worth a little bit of maybe bringing back into the discussion the differences between the two. Because you talked about decision-making versus choosing the right action and how that mm-hmm. might be associated with these two ideas of technique and tactics, tactics and technique. Can you can you unpack the difference between the two of them a little bit more just so we understand, because those words are very, very much used now, more and more. We hear them thrown out there as it was a technical error. It was a tactical error. And I'm still, even to this day, I still think that there's a vast gap in terms of distinguishing between them. I think I still think there might be some ambiguity. And I know this is a, an area that you, in particular, have really decisively tried to make separate elements. Yeah, so people you know, look at the execution of a skill uh, without sometimes recognizing the the context. And you can't isolate the skill execution from the tactical 
pr- moment that they are in. Now, you, you, when you can, but you're wrong. Like, you know, so you take a quarterback, you can just put him in the middle of the field and practice and just tell him to stand there and throw the ball short, long, whatever. But until, because as the game evolves and they're in a moment, that moment is constantly changing. So the execution of the technique, for example, throwing a ball or sidestepping, that's a constant process. It's never just a fixed moment in time. It's evolving. And that's where you see, for example, running backs as they move and the events unfold before them would start to change direction. That's why, again, you never hit max speed or very extremely rarely hit max speed in games because the game is constantly evolving. It's not like you just create a gap and that's it, it's over. You know, they, it, they have to be constantly aware. And if you watch and, you know, in the, the team speed course, which should hopefully be finished shortly, I mean, I, I show very clearly the difference between track sprinting and on-field sprinting where, you know, in track, in, in one sense, you can effectively turn off all decision-making, perception, um, adjustment, because it's just a straight line. But you can't tell a running back or receiver to just run in a straight line and end up in the stand, you know, some safety come out of nowhere. So you, you've got to keep your head on a swivel constantly. But the execution of the skill um, in that moment in time is, is very, very important because even when you've got, say, for example, quarterbacks throwing the ball, they're still deciding right up until the moment the ball leaves, leaves, leaves their fingertips. And we did studies with rugby players, um, and I think I've seen something similar in, in, um, with quarterbacks where it's the length of time the ball is in the hand during the throwing motion that determines the accuracy. So you want the player to be constantly judging right up until it leaves the fingertips so that that ball will be accurate. And I think that that's so fascinating because now this was something that we had talked about off air is really bringing to um, the, the consciousness level in this episode was how do we, how do coaches kind of take this, this, these ideas, these ideas of developing, you know, technical skills, tactical skill, developing this decision-making, this anticipatory understanding? How do they begin to allow this to live and breathe in their practices? Because, you know, they're going to say, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how to augment my drills to handle this type of kind of game-like situations. How can I make this kind of more, more game-like in what I'm doing on the practice field? What would be some of your thoughts and messages to those coaches? play the game, play games. Like if you look at, this is the, the remarkable thing is we, some of the best talent we've had learn the game through playing, not even the game itself. They play on the streets, they play in backyards, they play. So they're moving constantly, they're adjusting, they're perceiving, they're judging movement, they're judging their opponents, their teammates, and they're playing. And they've developed naturally wonderful speed, quickness, agility, decision-making. And we bring them into a high school or college program, and now we start to coach them with drills and straight line. We take away the very things that they have developed themselves. So going back to, like, I mean, um, you know, you know, Cam can tell you, uh, you know, when he was at DeFranco's, you know, we, we went through this, play the game, take small-sided groups, play games with them. But to start with the warm-up at very, very low intensity with very simple rules, and the players themselves will start to work hard. They'll start to, and you do it in very confined spaces. Um, so they start to play a game. 
And they're judging their opponents. They're judging their movement. And it can be general to begin with, just like we have in you know tradition. You can have general games, 3v3 or whatever it might be. Then you can change, for example, you can change the orientation of the field. So let's say you've got a narrow field um, and it's very long. And you play a very, very simple game of three people have to get the ball to the other side. You can call it bozo ball or whatever. We give them names. So the players just run and they have to, you know, it's one touch or they can only have two passes or whatever. Well, if you have a long field, players are going to ha- have room to accelerate into. It's narrow, so they don't have a lot of lateral movement. So you're not going to stress the groin. You're not going to. So they, you've created um, the barriers um, to create certain conditions. Let's say you've got a very wide field, but you narrow, you keep it short in length. Now there's a lot more agility because players can move laterally more and more. But they're just playing a game. And you're developing agility, you're developing movement, you're developing perception. Or they are, sorry, they're doing it for, for themselves. You've just created the environment. Now, you can analyze, you can look at the study how they're doing it. And the, the great coaches make very few interventions. So they watch their player, they see certain players maybe who, have struggled, who struggle to lower their body position when they're moving laterally. So they go, okay, let's check groin here. Let's check ankle mobility with this player. So when you start even in the warm-up, you start to see those things. And then people say, oh, well, how do I make sure that he's getting fit enough? Well, you've got work-to-rest ratios for that. If, you, if they, you need them to work hard, well, let's go three reps in a row and then give them a break. Or if you want to concentrate on pure speed and explosive movements or explosive effort, give them lots of rest in between each small rep. If you want continuous for aerobic, you just keep the game going and going and going. When they get to one end, they turn and come back. But the the point is that you're not breaking it down in a reductionist approach. So these people who are doing like drills where you're running in a circle or stepping over cones, you're missing the you're missing the point. The players we develop agility through playing games, and you can tweak it by looking at their biomechanics. And um, again, that's what Dan and I went through. You have a checklist. Check ankles, look at shoulders, look at, with each player. And it's just a very simple checklist that your coaches, as they're observing, they can see that in the player. They can bring them, they can pull a player out, for example, or in between rest periods. Hey, let me just check this or stretch your calf. Let's see if we can get you a little bit lower, help you get better, better movement. But the, the most important thing using this approach with players are the players enjoy it and they want to do it. I remember Cam telling me how. When we started doing this, you know, he wasn't sure how it was going to go. And he came back on, on the next day back, or sorry, the third day back, he wanted to do some tempo running or some normal traditional training. The players didn't want to. They wanted to play the games again. You know, he had created this environment where they were developing agility within that context. And he had, the, and the best thing about it is you, the game, those um, restricted environments become a functional movement screen, an actual movement screen, because you're seeing the players. And you and there is no – you limit the risk by limiting the size or the area that they work in. You know, there, I mean, there's so many things to, to tease out of that, so many things that I was just – I keep writing down and circling and, and pointing arrows back to because everything you're saying is so interrelated. And, and I wanted to maybe – offer um, a point of a point that you might be able to speak to is, you know, here I am, you know, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm the first time sure. coach listening to this. You know, I hear everything that you're saying, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, obviously I have to 
I have to come up with the best 11 players on each side of the ball to play. And I'm concerned because as I watch some of these games unfold, these small sided games, you know, I, I, I may be more biased to certain types of, you know, movement patterns and the elegance of certain movement patterns. And maybe, maybe I'm not thinking about functionality completely. How, how would you begin to get me out of my own biases and more into this idea of kind of finding the best players amongst all the players I have on my team using small sided games? How can I do that? in a meaningful way, because I, I'm, I'm so used to doing drills as a manner of improving the players that are starting for me and maybe developing a little bit, but you know, I love this idea of holistic development, but I'm, I don't know how to assess these small sided games. I, I'm not sure how to look at these small sided games in a meaningful way. So I can bring it to the field. What would you say use, to that, coach? Use the very same, you use the very same approach that you use to assess the game. You see, that w- what you have at the minute is you've got one set of metrics for assessing training, like speed, strength, whatever, and then you've got a completely different one for the game. The very same metrics you use or the very same quantitative or qualitative metrics you use for the game will use the same in, in, in practice. And what's happening then is players know exactly what they're being assessed on. And your better players are going to stand out within the games, within practice, um, the small side of games and the games themselves. And so you become better at seeing them. And again, like everybody's seen The Last Dance. I, I, I'm pretty sure everybody who's listening has. Well, you know, time and time again, you heard Jordan arguing, or talking about how, you know, Phil Jackson, you know, changed teams or put them in different teams. Well, in, in, in these small side of games, we do the very same thing. If we've got three studs or whatever number of absolute, you know, your top players, well, give the opposition an extra player. Now it's 3v4. So now you've got your, your top players are even facing more opposition. Or what you can do is if you've got a player who needs extra work, well, he doesn't get as much rest. He joins in with the next team. So you can manipulate the numbers, the size of the field, the conditions to exploit it. But you become better yourself at spotting which players can see gaps. You create opportunities. So, for example, if you've got a player who struggles um, to move to the right or to find space to the right, We'll always put him on the right wing, and then he's going to he's going to find himself in that situation where he's forced to move to the right or sidestep to the right more often. So you're training him in context. Now, listen, you can take him out and you can do you know right stepping drills and all that. Maybe if you want to do it in the warm up, do it in the warm up. But then you still got to you still have to to help him use it in the game context. So why not create those small sided game environments? and train them in the warm-up even or in parts of conditioning within that so that you can actually help him. There isn't as long a gap between that and actually moving from, you know, stationary drills or running in, you know, silly circles or whatever, you know. It, it looks great, yes, and you can measure it uh, objectively. But it's got no transfer. It's like it's back to the 40, you know what I mean? In theory, you know, the fastest 40 should be the fast, fastest player, but we all know how valuable that is. You know, I'm going to ask you one of the most, I think, thought-provoking questions that (laughs) I think troubles every coach. I think this is the famous question that we all ask. What should come first, the assessment of your team or the playbook? What should come first? Because, you know, as a coach, you go in there with a playbook, 
a vision of how you see the game, which is what I think a playbook truly is. A playbook mm-hmm. in and of itself is a personal vision of how you see the game unfolding, whether that be in football, rugby, or um, uh, soccer, or any sport I can think of, plays, playbook, a philosophy. You come in with a philosophy as a coach, which in some ways, a very not nice way to say it is certain biases to how you see the game unfolding. And it can be very difficult to manage your own biases versus what you may have on your team in terms of personnel and ability. How do you begin to reconcile that? Like, in other words, what would you ask of your coaches knowing, you know, at knowing that you're trying to help this coach really win games, which is what you are absolutely trying to do. What would you say to them as they enter that locker room for the first time and they're observing their team and they have this dense, thoughtful, rich playbook that's been developed over millennia, you know, to really kind of find every nuance. What would you ask them to kind of, to kind of do? Would you say to them, holster that playbook, put it in the holster, put it away for a little while, and let's go ahead and do some small sided games. Let's see what we have. Or would you say, no, you have to think more about what your playbook represents and maybe reduce it down to principles that mean something and then maybe rebuild it from scratch. I don't know. What would you say to that coach? So, uh, I know that's very dense, but that seems to be a no. question that a lot of a lot of coaches come in with them. Yeah, uh, NFL head coach asked me that very question two weeks ago, and I told him you start with the player, actually find out you know what the players prefer, what they're most comfortable with. Start there, and then you bring them round to if you have a better idea or what. Would you start with what the players are most comfortable with, so that you actually build that relationship? And then you can find out, then you can develop it. But if you can, you can come in with a preconceived idea, but, you know, it, it's like, you know, you know, I've used the Parcells quote again, you know, before about buying groceries, you've got to know what you have. So if you come in already with a fixed menu, but you turn up and the groceries are completely different, well, you know, you're not going to be able to, to get what you want. So you've got to see what you have. But and what you find as well is, um, you have to start with the ability of the players and what they're good at. And you will see, you know, very quickly with players. Now, I'm not, listen, I'm not saying that you just go in and just start playing games. And what I'm saying is that games are a better way of developing and seeing and monitoring. So the sooner that you can come around to that, but start with, with what, with that you have to start with the players that you have. And the more experienced coaches, of course, are, have far greater uh, back catalogs, so to speak, so that when they do produce their playbook, it's actually more attuned to the raw materials that they have. And I think that's so fascinating because I think that, you know, I think most coaches listening to this right now will appreciate that sentiment saying, of course, you know, I want to make sure that I develop a playbook that is most representative of the abilities of my team or else I'm not going to be able to win games. And I know many of them might be saying that, you know, that's a foolish question. But I do ask that question because I do think that there's a remarkable inherent bias that is part of each and every human being on this planet to things that they want to do, things that they feel like they can do better than others. And how do we begin to manage that bias and see more clearly what's going to be in the best interests of winning games? And 
that's what I thought we could kind of bring because you again you've been extremely generous with your time, but I thought if you could kind of bring this full circle a little bit, and we've talked about teams, what makes teams great, and we've talked about all the different elements and factors and tactical elements and technical elements and where they fit in this puzzle. But how can we, as a coach, starting the upcoming seasons, how can we begin to action some of this information? What are a couple of salient points that you might ask your coaches moving into this upcoming season? Take that playbook, take your team, and do what? What would you ask them to do? A couple of thought exercises or something to that effect. So one of one of the things that a lot of us forget is that you know speed is a product of of the team's interaction itself. So let's say you go home and um, your wife or your partner goes, "I can't believe you did," and and she stops. You know exactly what she's going to say because it's in the back of your mind or you can finish her sentences for you. So there's a so-called telepathy, or you've had a familiarity, okay? Now, let's go, to, let's go to a football field, and players make decisions because they know already what somebody else is going to do because they have played together so much. But it's not simply that they have played together and developed that familiarity. It's that they have played together with an emotional stress. You have to have an emotional involvement or it doesn't register a memory. So like often, like, I mean, you know, way back was the 49ers with Frank Gore. I remember sitting down asking him about a particular, why he made a particular decision. And Frank couldn't explain it to me, you know, in a sense that I wanted, but he made those decisions because he had seen these patterns before. He was just playing on instinct. He had seen them before. It's that familiarity. But it's not simply about junk reps. It's about reps under high stress. That's what forms memories. Because you can go through the routine, but you're not forming memories. So if you take a team, let's come back to our team. The teams that play best together have trained and played with very high intensity. Not excessively, so that they're not burned out and fatigued. But in short bursts, played at very high intensity. And that develops a familiarity. So they can so-called finish each other's sentences for them. That's what you're looking for so that they know what the quarterback's going to do. They know what the receiver, they know what the tight end's going to do. And that's, that's the beauty of team sport. And that's what true team speed is. And that, that's how teams become more and more efficient over time. Unbelievable. He is Dr. Fergus Connolly. He has works that span across many different disciplines from everything from the process, which I've personally read both, both of those editions so far, they've been outstanding game changer, which I can't say enough. If you don't know game changer and you haven't purchased it yet, I I immediately implore you to go out and purchase it today, but then also very interesting editions, 59 lessons, which really talks about working with the world's elite coaches and, and, kind of lessons to be taken from those discussions. And the most recent book, The Happiness Handbook for High Achievers, Dr. Fergus Connolly, and also has a website full of courses. Um, many of them, I, I, I implore you to kind of examine this. Many of them are free. 
things that you can just kind of sign up for and, you know, watch a couple of, you know, episodes, especially some of the recent Zoom calls that you've been doing um, as well. Um, there's just so much out there. I, I took the, you know, programming and team sports course, which is phenomenal. I'm still working on the systems course, which is um, in a in a world that I'm still learning about, Gaelic football. I mean, but it's so much more than just about Gaelic football. It's about working with teams and what that means. Um, really impressive. Dr. Connolly, where, where are you going? Where are you going with your future, (laughs) with, with your future, with your future installments? I mean, because you are really a diversified kind of lecturer across the board. So what can you share with our audience about things you're working on, where they can follow you and kind of what you hope to do in the upcoming weeks and years and months ahead? Um, I've got two courses I'm trying to get done. One is this Team Speed one that's been sitting for ages. It actually started, uh, it could be 20 years ago. I went to Don Path, Chula Vista, uh, San Diego, you know, I remember, and we spent, I don't know how long. And I went to him with questions people were asking. Now it was 20 years ago. I went, Don, I've got rugby players, or I can't remember, it was rugby players at the time, and I need a checklist to assess these guys biomechanically. And I've never published it or never present, uh, actually, sorry, presented at Altus and the you know, team recently. And Dan was there actually. And Dan goes, yeah, he said, this is, he said, I wouldn't disagree with any of this. And it was basically a checklist for coaches. Look, um, if the player is doing this, what do I need to check? What might it be? What's the differential diagnosis? What's the biomechanical treatment? What's the therapy treatment? What's the strength interventions? Um, so that, from a speed perspective, that's one course. You know, finally, you know, I just want to share with people and get it out there. And then the other one then is, you know, taking Game Changer just into an online course because, you know, I had a coach recently and uh, I, I didn't realize it, but, but he was saying to me, he said, I'm, I'm dyslexic. And he said, I, you know, I love your books, but I really learn much better with video. And I'd been dragging my ass a little bit on it and I've gone, you know what, that's a good enough reason to try and get, get this done. But, yeah, it's just there's so many things that people are starting to ask questions about now that I was fortunate, like I said, to go and learn from Dan and from from others years ago. And it's just a case of just getting the time to get it to get it out there. Um, and it's you know, I, I don't have all the answers. I'm just trying to solve these these questions. Like, I mean, so for example, you know, the question you asked about teams, like how why do some teams have all of the fastest players, perhaps? but they don't play fast. What's the d- difference? So um, I went, believe it or not, to dancing to try and understand how do two people synchronize when they can't communicate? How do they synchronize movements? The other one then was uh, improv. What techniques do they use to try and uh, recognize in other people how to respond? Because when you think about a game, there is no communication. Yeah, you've got to, and then people say, oh, I've got this predetermined play. Yeah, your play is brilliant until, you know, the ball snapped and then it's out the window. So, like, what are the fundamental, how do we make decisions? Even with the military, even clearing houses, close quarter battle, close quarter combat, what are the, the decision-making factors? What are the conditions that allow people? And um, it's not simply, like, the number of reps is important, but it's not simply that. It's the nature and the environment that you put people under so that you can form those emotional memories and patterns that people can recall. And then what's the difference at the elite end and then in a developmental end? So you, you have to 
I'll leave you with this last um, last story. Many, many years ago, I was at a Formula One team, and uh, their facility um, was just it was amazing. And um, but as I was going to their to the meeting, uh, the entrance was underground, so you get into this like elevator, bring you down underground, and you know I just these directions from the security person. So get out of one elevator. And I'm in this underground tunnel uh, square, like with white floors, white walls, white ceilings. And there was a small red arrow that said, walk this way. And it was maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 meters of just white. It was like something out of a James Bond movie. And then you go to the far end and there's another elevator. And, you go on. and later on the day, I was talking to the guy. I said, hey, what, what's the story with this white corridor? And he said, oh, he said, the reason for that is that it has a very, very important psychological reason. We want people, as they're coming to work and as they're leaving from work, to clear their minds. Leave work behind, leave life behind as you're coming in so that you can clear your mind. It's, there's an actual psychological purpose to it. And I thought it was a wonderful way of for them for problem solving. You know, leave, really take that process, take that idea. So when it comes to a problem for coaches, it's only a suggestion, but you know, take that moment to clear your mind of everything and look at the problem and start with a whiteboard, like start with a white room, start with like let's just solve the problem. Forget about the biases or what other people are doing or what stupid drill you're gonna see on Instagram. Like how would you solve this particular problem? Like what's happening? So use that whiteboard like just mental imagery let's solve the problem from scratch and just try and keep those biases to one side rather than just copy copycatting well and you know what i hope this discussion today was essentially a metaphor for taking that elevator down walking through that white corridor and really hopefully taking the elevator up to a new level of understanding i hope we've left everybody today with many of those thoughts and insights. And as I've said previously, you can find Dr. Fergus Connolly, you know, on Twitter at Fergus, F-E-R-G-U-S underscore Connolly, C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y. You can search him very easily and find him. And I cannot recommend um, his books and his courses highly enough. I've personally bought them, participated in them, and they have been something that continue to challenge me, continue to change me, and continue to, as Dr. Connolly said so eloquently, not find answers, but ask better questions. And I think that that's really the essence of his work and hopefully what this series was meant to do. So on behalf of myself, Dr. Fergus Connolly, and the rest of the staff at the Saturday Sunday Football Podcast, thank you so much. And please join us next time as we take you from Saturday to Sunday.